0: Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent 4th Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 12, Let's Get Down to Theologizing, Athanasius' On the Incarnation. I have said that one of my goals in this podcast is to tell the story of Nicaea intertwining theology and politics because I believe the two are inseparable. We are now getting to the part of that story where that commitment is especially important because some of the primary theological works of the period are being written. And they are being written by none other than the erstwhile bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius. So over the next two episodes, we'll be covering two very different works of theology that he wrote in two very different political circumstances. This week, we'll be covering On the Incarnation, which bears the triumphal tone of a man confident in the defeat of his enemies. And next time, we'll be talking about Orations Against the Arians, in which he was much less confident of that same defeat. So let's start with On the Incarnation. This has long been considered to be Athanasius' masterwork, and it is still required reading in many seminaries to this day. Now there is some debate as to when this piece was written. Some scholars maintain that it was written before the outbreak of the Arian controversy altogether. One of the main reasons for thinking this is because Athanasius doesn't mention Arius in this text at all. Now it also has something of a triumphal tone to it, which is what one might expect also when the Nicene Controversy seemed to have been won, as well as before it began. And so others date it to the very early years of Athanasius' episcopacy, back when Arius was still persona non grata, and before Athanasius' enemies were making up rumors that he murdered people and cut off their hands for fun and fell ritual. The general consensus seems to be for the latter option, namely that this dates from the early part of Athanasius's bishopric. But in either case, we can tell that it is written by a man with time on his hands, not yet embroiled in the controversies that would mark most of his ministry. On the Incarnation is a short text, usually clocking in at under a 100 pages in most editions, so if you want to get a real sense for Athanasius's thought, the best way to do so is simply to read the book yourself. But as you have already taken time out of your day to listen to this podcast, the least I can do is summarize his arguments for you. And it's a worthwhile endeavor because Athanasius insists that who Christ is, the only begotten Son of God, homoousius with the Father, is intimately connected with what Christ came to do. So what exactly did Christ come to do? Well. Athanasius sees two interrelated problems with humanity that need to be fixed. The first is the fact that due to our fallen state, all human beings eventually die. This is, of course, because when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree all the way back in Genesis, God said, if you eat of the tree, you shall die. They ate of the tree, and so they died. Now, it's important to say here that for Athanasius, death is not just a punishment devised by a god who's mad we didn't follow the rules. Death is the natural consequence of human beings turning away from God. One of the most fascinating parts of Athanasius' thought is that he conceives of human beings as being fundamentally nothing. Nothing at all. Only God has life and being as properties of nature. Because God created everything else from nothing, Athanasius sees God as the sort of power source that keeps creation running. The implication being that when created beings turn away from God or disconnect themselves from God's will, they return to their natural state of non-being. They die, in other words almost like a fan that stops spinning once you unplug it from its power source. Now this situation puts God in a dilemma, because on the one hand, it is in the nature of things that sin causes death. God declared it, and God, being omniscient and all good, cannot take back that decree without compromising the divine integrity. It's not just a matter that God can't go back on God's word. God decreed that the soul that sins will die, because that was a true and just thing. So to do otherwise would be neither true nor just. Moreover, God is the ruler of the universe, and it's not appropriate for God to just let the human race go on harming each other and destroying the natural order without consequences. But on the other hand, it would be just as inappropriate for God to let the human race be corrupted and destroyed. Why? Because God created the human race, loves it, and destined it for complete happiness. If the human race were simply abandoned to self-destruction, then God's plans would have been thwarted. And that is equally inappropriate for a God who is omnipotent, all good, and rules the whole universe. If humanity isn't saved, the devil wins. Period. End of story. So, as God responds to the human dilemma, there are two things that just won't work. Just forgiving the human race and going on as if nothing had happened won't work. That doesn't address the harm that we continue to cause each other. And it doesn't change the fact that humans continually alienate themselves from God and fall into death as a result. It's sort of like plugging the fan back into the outlet knowing that the fan is just going to get unplugged over and over again. But doing nothing and leaving humanity to its fate isn't a solution either. It essentially amounts to God giving up on creation. And God doesn't do that. As Athanasius says in chapter 6, and I quote, "...it was not worthy of the goodness of God that those created by him should be corrupted through the deceit wrought by the devil upon human beings." And it was supremely improper that the workmanship of God in human beings should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of the demons. I emphasize this dilemma because in many parts of the world it is fashionable to describe the atonement as something God might well have chosen not to do with the implication that human beings are worthless sinners who can do nothing at all but thank God for this unmerited gift of a second chance. That's not quite how Athanasius sees it, or most of the early church for that matter. For Athanasius, it's true that redemption is God's free choice. Nobody put a gun to God's head and told God to save humanity or else. But it's not a particularly surprising choice. Because of the sort of God that God is, we can expect that God will try and save creation instead of just abandoning it. So while we are to remain supremely grateful for God's mercy, I do not think Athanasius imagines that God's wrath ever would have overcome that mercy in any possible world. So that's the problem. How does God solve it? By taking a human body to himself, and offering it up to the Father through his death. Athanasius says that in Christ's death all died in him, and so the law that death follows sin was fulfilled. Yet because Christ is God, a natural source of life and being, all humans may be united with him in this life. This life is immortal, and so Jesus succeeds in a truly lovely Athanasian turn of phrase, by the grace of his resurrection, banishing death from them, as straw from the fire. Now, this model often raises some interesting questions for modern readers. Foremost among them is why exactly the death and resurrection of one man should have implications for us. Because Athanasius is making a very bold claim here, he's saying that the power of death has been broken over every single human being and that there is something fundamentally different about every single human being and human body because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And particularly in the individualistic West, we might question how that could be. How can what happens in one human body affect what happens in my body and soul? A professor of mine once told me that when reading old books, you often learn the most not from what they argue, but from what they assume without question. This is undoubtedly true here. For Athanasius assumes that there is such a natural solidarity between the members of the human race, that what happens to one human being affects all of us. The example he uses is of a king visiting a city. The king doesn't have to enter every single house in the city in order for the city to be honored. Even just visiting one house affords the whole city a greater honor and dignity, not to mention royal protection. And so it is, Athanasius says, with humanity. Were this a simple theology podcast, I would pause longer over this idea because I find it fascinating. I would wonder with you why Athanasius doesn't seem to reference Paul's idea of the body of Christ, into which all Christians are knit, because that seems to establish exactly the sort of unity required for his argument to work. I might also make some arguments for the existence of the solidarity he assumes, including the powerful nature of unconscious communication between all people. But alas, this is a church history podcast, and so we will have to nerd out about this some other time. For now, we must press onward in the book. Onward to the second dilemma that Athanasius proposes. This second dilemma concerns human knowledge. God made human beings in the divine image, and this image specifically is the word mentioned in John 1 who becomes incarnate in Jesus. You may know that the Greek word logos we typically translate as word has a wide variety of possible meanings. Story, narrative, reason, and cause are all other equally valid translations. Put generally, the Lagos is that which makes meaning possible. And so for Athanasius, the fact that we are rational beings, that we are storytelling beings who try to make meaning out of our world, is a sign that we have the image of the Lagos in us. One of the effects of sin is that we lose our knowledge of God. For Athanasius, the biggest proof of this is idolatry. After the fall, human beings began to worship things other than God and to forget about the one true God who made them all. In doing so, the image of God inside us is obscured. Again, this puts God in a dilemma. How does God restore the knowledge that we have lost? Because it is not appropriate for God's image to be effaced any more than it was for God's creations to be consigned to non-being. Athanasius considers a number of possibilities here. Perhaps the wonders of creation, the beauty of the natural world, would remind us of the God who created it all. But that seems wrong. After all, humans have had creation all along, and that hasn't stopped us from making a mess of things. Just so with the law God had sent through the prophets. It was good But by empirical evidence, it was simply insufficient to stamp out idolatry and ignorance from the human heart. There is, in the end, only one solution to be had. Human beings must be confronted with the true image of the Father, the Word of God. Only by seeing that image in whom they are made will humans be restored to the knowledge of God. Athanasius compares this to a painter. When a portrait has been damaged or destroyed, what do you do? Well, you get the original subject to sit down for a new painting and recreate the image. By coming down to us in a flesh and blood body, the Word of God gave us the most concrete possible view of the one true God. Now having said that, there are two caveats that I want to make. The first is that some of the more medievally minded of you may be thinking that this sounds an awful lot like something called the moral influence theory. The moral influence theory is a medieval doctrine that says that Christ saves us by showing us what truly selfless love looks like. Once we see what Jesus does on the cross, our hearts are turned to love and we follow his example. In so doing, we become the people that God calls us to be. There are definitely some similarities here. In both cases, we are highlighting the cognitive dimensions of salvation. By becoming incarnate, Jesus shows us how to act, and that knowledge changes us. But there are also some pretty big differences. For starters, Athanasius isn't really worried about the moral failings of humanity right now. He's mostly worried about idolatry. Now, of course, forgetting the image of God can lead to all sorts of nasty sins. Dishonesty, greed, cowardice, the creation of frozen yogurt. But Athanasius doesn't really get into those details. For Athanasius, Christ shows us what God is rather than what morality is. And while he shows that through his actions to a certain extent, Jesus mostly shows it by being God in the flesh. And that leads to the second point because while athanasius doesn't explicitly mention the arians in his work he is making a subtle argument against the position of arius some like to call athanasius's theology one of salvation by contact god takes on a human body it is because the divine and human come into physical contact That the power of death over human bodies is broken. It is because we literally see God in the flesh, because the image of God is re-inscribed in the body of Jesus of Nazareth, that the image of God in ourselves is restored. Now all of this works great if the Word is truly God. If the Word is a lesser divinity, though, or doesn't know the Father, like Arius taught, then salvation seems impossible. After all, how can Jesus give us the knowledge of the Father if he sings the praises of the Highest One with only partial adequacy, like Arius' Thalia claimed? This strand of thought will be very important to our story going forward. This link between Christology and Soteriology. The importance that Jesus was truly God in order to save humankind. All of that is going to be absolutely crucial to the eventual resolution of this conflict, but its full development is going to have to wait for a while. The full divinity of the Sun has other important consequences for the Incarnation too. Since the Sun is fully divine, that means the Sun is not limited to his earthly body. In fact, Athanasius prefers not to say that the word dwelt in a body. It's true, but the word dwells everywhere and is contained by nothing. Saying that the word is in a body could imply that the word is bound to that body. So Athanasius often prefers to talk about the word appearing through a body or wielding a body. Of course, talking about wielding the body makes it sound like the body of Jesus of Nazareth was some kind of high-tier loot in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. But, I suppose, Athanasius can be forgiven for not anticipating the whims of 20th century game designers. The word's body is a tool, but it in no way contains him. Athanasius says that the son was, quote, "...both in the body and in everything, and was outside everything, and at rest in the father alone." That's from On the Incarnation, Chapter 16. Now this is an important way to use language for many reasons, but perhaps the most important is that it gives Athanasius a way to maintain the son's impassibility. Impassibility is one of those $10 philosophical words that theologians love to throw around. It means immunity to suffering. It is considered a particularly important corollary of another $10 word, immutability, which means immunity to change. The reason this idea is important is because everyone in this controversy, from Arius to Athanasius and everyone in between, took it for granted that the father was immutable and impassable. You may remember that this is one of the reasons that modalism was considered so terrible. It implied that the father had suffered and therefore denied both immutability and impassibility. Now since Athanasius wants to claim that the father and son have the same substance, he is going to want to say that the Son, like the Father, is immutable and impassable. At first glance, this might seem like a pretty tall order because the Son became incarnate, suffered, died, and was, rather famously, resurrected. Those sure do seem like a lot of changes and sufferings. Athanasius' answer to this is to make a strong distinction between the Son's body and the Son himself. The body that the Son takes up and uses is a human body, and it eats, drinks, suffers, dies, and is resurrected in all the ways that a human body can be. The Son, however, is not the body, and so is not subject to any of these changes. We see in this distinction the roots of an idea that will grow over the next century into the Council of Chalcedon's famous declaration that Christ has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. We don't need to particularly get into that here. The road to Nicaea, thankfully, does not run all the way to Chalcedon. For now, just know that we are seeing the anticipation of ideas that will continue to be developed, and not just by those deemed orthodox. At times, Athanasius describes the sun's body almost like it's a video game character, completely controlled by the word while being completely separate from it. That talk about the word appearing in a body often resembles the way Athanasius talks about the word appearing in the rest of creation. Or saying that the body is controlled and used by the sun. To some theologically trained ears this can sound like Apollinarianism. A later heresy in which it was complained that the sun completely replaced the human mind of Jesus. Just as Origen and Tertullian laid the ground for later arguments over their legacies, so too Athanasius' words would sow the seed for future conflicts. Such seems to be the way of things when it comes to doctrine. The rest of On the Incarnation is dedicated to answering various objections that some imaginary skeptic might raise against God's plan. They are not particularly relevant to the controversies with Arius, but they're surprisingly similar to many of the questions that people have today, so it's worth going through them in at least a little bit of detail. First, Athanasius asks, even if the word had to die in order to redeem the world, there is nothing in the divine dilemma that requires the word to have died on a cross. Did Jesus really have to go in such an unpleasant way? Athanasius' answer to this is that it may not have been strictly necessary, but death on the cross was still fitting for several reasons. First, by virtue of being the body of God, inseparably connected to the source of life and light, Jesus' body would not have died of natural causes. So a public death was fitting because if he had died in private, people might have assumed that natural causes had claimed him. Furthermore, if he died in private, people might have doubted whether he had really died. Say what you will about the crucifixion, but there was no doubt that Jesus was dead by the end of it, and that makes the resurrection more believable. But perhaps most importantly, Jesus chose to die via crucifixion precisely because it was such a painful, ignominious form of death. One of the points of the Incarnation was to show God's power over death. To really make that point clear, God needed to triumph over the worst kind of death. If Jesus had died in his sleep at age 100, in a comfortable bed of normal causes, surrounded by a loving family, then one might have wondered how committed God really was to the cause of human liberation, or even if God could really stomach all deaths. The cross removes these doubts. In one of the loveliest bits of the book, Athanasius then moves from argument to doxology as he praises the evident destruction of death through Christ, a conquest of death that is never more apparent than in the witness of the martyrs. One imagines Athanasius thinking of the stories he would have heard of the great persecution and the heroics of the Christians a mere generation before him. Whom he might have seen as a very small boy. He writes, and I quote, that death has been dissolved and the cross become victory over it and it is no longer strong but is itself truly dead. No mean proof but an evident surety is that it is despised by all Christ's disciples and everyone tramples on it and no longer fears it but with the sign of the cross and faith in Christ Tread it underfoot as something dead. Of old, before the divine sojourn of the Savior, all used to weep for those dying as if they were perishing. But since the Savior's raising the body no longer is death fearsome, but all believers in Christ tread on it as nothing and would rather choose to die than deny their faith in Christ. For they really know that when they die, they are not destroyed, but both live and become incorruptible through the resurrection." And that devil, who formerly exulted in death, only he remains truly dead. That's on the Incarnation, Chapter 27. The final section of the book is devoted to a refutation of two groups, the Jews and the Greeks. The Greeks don't just mean people from modern-day Greece, it's a stand-in for all Gentiles. Athanasius is repeating a theme picked up in Saint Paul, who described Jesus as a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks in 1 Corinthians 123. Athanasius, like Paul, believes that the incarnation he is describing is somehow scandalous to everyone in the world, whether Jew or Gentile, and he is going to describe how. Where the Greeks are concerned, Athanasius is mostly concerned to prove that the Incarnation is a reasonable thing for a god to do. After all, in Greek philosophy, god is an immutable, impassible being who has a rather distant relationship to the material world of change and suffering. So, Athanasius restates some of the reasons he has already given for the necessity of god becoming incarnate. Then he answers a truly excellent question from the Hypothetical Greek, which is this. If God had to become incarnate, why doesn't God do so as something more glorious and just generally cooler than a human being? Why couldn't God become a quasar, or a red panda, or one of those giant mechanical zords who join up to become one big megazord in the Power Rangers series? Okay, I might have made those particular examples up, but you get the general point. Athanasius admits that there are other kinds of beings in the universe that are pretty dope. But the point of the Incarnation is not to look cool. It is to heal and teach human beings. And that is best accomplished by God taking on a body like theirs. Athanasius then turns to Jewish objections to the Incarnation and argues that there are Old Testament messianic prophecies that can only refer to Jesus. Many of the prophecies that he refers to are still cited by Christians in controversies today. The most famous is in Isaiah chapter 7, which states, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Immanuel, which means God with us. Athanasius points out that none of the Old Testament worthies were born from virgins, and therefore Jesus is the only possible referent. But there is one prophecy that Athanasius keeps referencing over and over again. That prophecy is Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 66, which reads, You will see your life hanging before your eyes, and you will not believe. Athanasius sees this as a perfect foreshadowing of exactly what happened at the crucifixion. Life itself hung on a cross, and the crowd looked upon him and refused to believe. Now, any Jews who were listening to Athanasius probably had a few bones to pick with his logic here. For starters, that word in Isaiah chapter 7 that is translated as virgin can also just mean young woman, not necessarily someone who has not had sexual intercourse. Furthermore, that prophecy is said by Isaiah to King Ahaz, who lived 700 years before Jesus was born. And the prophecy itself is pretty time-limited. Ahaz is worried because he's being invaded by two foreign nations. God tells him not to worry because a child will be born, and before that kid is old enough to know right from wrong, both the invading nations will be defeated. It's not a messianic prophecy at all. And the passage from Deuteronomy that Athanasius cites over and over again isn't even a prophecy at all. It's just God warning the Israelites what's going to happen if they don't keep the laws in the rest of the book. Those words have nothing to do with the Messiah. They are a warning about the fate of the disobedient. Now, Athanasius seems like a reasonably clever man. He knows the context of the scriptures he is quoting. So why on earth does he seem to be cherry picking verses and flagrantly ignoring the context of these so-called prophecies that he cites? Well, this is a complicated question but the answer probably goes back to origin of Alexandria and the practice of allegorical reading. As you may remember, everyone in this time period, and I mean everyone, took it for granted that at least some biblical texts were allegories for deeper spiritual realities that weren't obvious on the first reading of the text. This is not a difference between Christians and Jews. In fact, the pioneering Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria was producing allegorical readings of the scriptures 200 years before Origen first thoughtfully stroked his chin. The difference, most likely, is as to what Jews and Christians believed the content of those allegories to be. Christians read the New Testament and on that basis, believe that the whole Bible, even the Old Testament, pointed to Jesus. One early Christian author put it like this, No one predicted ahead of time that Jesus would be crucified on a cross. Perhaps no one could have predicted that. But once the crucifixion happened, all of creation seemed suddenly full of allusions to the cross. Even the bridge of the nose creates a sort of cross on a person's forehead. Something like that, I think, is going on with the way Athanasius reads the Old Testament. He sees all kinds of signs and foreshadowings of the Incarnation that his Jewish contemporaries do not, simply because they do not believe ahead of time that those texts point to Jesus at all. All of this raises a set of very interesting questions about the limits of allegorical interpretations. At a literal level, it's pretty easy to point out that most of the prophecies Athanasius cites aren't about Jesus at all. There are some where there's a stronger argument to be made for the literal case. The Suffering Servant Song in Isaiah chapter 53 is a leading contender. But most of the prophecies Athanasius cites simply don't work at the literal level. They must be read allegorically to understand Athanasius' argument. But that raises all sorts of new questions. Questions like, What symbols mean which things? Who gets to decide? And how can two people who have different fundamental religious views agree on the meaning of a text? Or can they at all? These are extremely searching and powerful questions. Some, in my opinion, of the most important questions facing Christians today. And so it is with some degree of regret that I must inform you that they are not questions we are going to be answering here. For they are theological questions, and we are but a humble church history podcast. And history, unlike allegory, marches ever onward. Our time with On the Incarnation is growing short. For as we all know, Athanasius would not get to sit comfortably in Alexandria, writing treatises explaining the fundamental points of Christian doctrine. Instead, he would soon be kicked out of Alexandria, sitting less comfortably in Rome, writing treatises denouncing the shadowy faction that had ejected him, and that threatened to plunge the whole empire back into the depths of pre-Nicene confusion. It is to that more contentious part of his early theology that we now turn. So join us next week as we delve into the first surviving treatise addressing the Nicene controversy, the Orations Against the Aryans, a group appearing for the very first time in the literature of the period. How strange indeed that only after their founder had shuffled off his mortal coil would this group arise upon the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltarmag.com. Uh.